Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have David Richard Nash. He's an associate professor in ecology and evolution at the University of Copenhagen. And we're going to talk about ants and um, the co-evolution symbioses that uh, they are and they encounter. So, David, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Your research sounds like an interesting combination. Tell me about it. What's the intent of it, and what's uh, what are you working on? Well, there's several different aspects of it, and um, so I've been working with social insects, particularly ants, for uh, around forty years now, and on and off. And they have many parallels with human societies. So I guess that's what caught my interest in the first place. But they also have many interactions with other organisms, what's been called mimecophiles, uh, a species that love ants, if you like. And particularly, there's a group of butterflies called the Lycaenid butterflies, which is uh, where I started my research career, working on an Australian species that uh, has a mutualistic association with ants. Oh, what's that association? So that is a case where the caterpillars of the butterflies live on uh, some specific food plants, in this case on acacia plants um, in Australia. And they are surrounded all the time by ant workers that come up from the nest and uh, gather around the caterpillars. And they protect the caterpillars from other insects that are likely to attack the caterpillars uh, or also from some vertebrates that may attack them. Uh, and in return, they get some secretions that the caterpillars produce uh, from a particular gland, which the ants feed from. And they take the, those secretions back to the nest and feed them to the rest of the ant. So it's a mutualism oh. because both of them gain something from it, but they also pay something. So the ants spend their time and their energy protecting the, the butterflies, and the butterflies pay with this sugary secretions that they give to the ants. Oh, okay. So it's the butterfly. It's not the... Um... The developing larvae that do anything, but the butterflies that come to tend to them give the sorry. ants the sugar. Uh, no, sorry, the, the caterpillars of the butterfly that give the ants the sugar. Uh, are the caterpillars, they do it from the very beginning, and are they mobile or they're mobile until the point they are they mobile? The yes, and they so when they hatch out from the egg, like most butterfly larvae, they go through several different larval stages, and in that case, the first one doesn't seem to have any of these glands. Uh, so it just hangs around with the other larger caterpillars. But from the second right up to the fifth uh, larval stage of that species, they have these special glands for producing uh, sugary substances that the ants feed on, which also have a lot of uh, amino acids in them. So it's not just carbohydrates they're getting. They get a complete balanced meal, if you like, from uh, feeding from these secretions from the butterflies. But and the, then, uh, the, ants are, the ants are tending to them even in the first stage where they get nothing back? How long is it? They, yes, they, they certainly don't uh, harm them. And they seem to be able to recognize that they will, they're the same species as will give them some reward later. So it makes sense that they don't attack and kill them. Instead, they look after them and protect them because, no, in the evolutionary sense, that in, in, a, in a few weeks' time, they will get some reward from, from keeping them alive rather than killing them. Well, that's amazing how the ants can know that. 
and have patience and wait for the right signal. And uh, I mean, that's an interesting form of memory that they would know such a thing. You know? Yes, I mean, it's probably not memory. It's purely instinctual there because other ants that, that didn't recognize the, the smell of these caterpillars and didn't and ate them instead would not do so well. So it's it's I don't think any memory is involved. Probably fairly hardwired in their system that they recognize the particular chemicals that are found on the surface of these butterflies. All insects have chemicals on their surfaces, so the particular pattern of chemicals they have on these they probably recognize in the sense of if they didn't react that way to that mixture, then they wouldn't do as well. Okay. So beyond this cooperation, what other um, behaviors do you see? What other relationships do ants have with other creatures around them? Well, within this this group of butterflies, uh, there's a very large proportion of them that have some sort of association with ants. So it's been estimated that around 80% of the the different species in that family have some sort of association with ants. Um, Most of the time, it seems to be mutualistic, like the species I was working on for my PhD, that they give some reward in return for protection. But often... The reward they give is just sugars, and it's a very loose relationship. So any different ant species they encounter, they can give a reward to, and in return, the ant will not attack them. But that species I was working on for my PhD, uh, it's only one or two species of ant that are very closely related that associate with the butterflies, and they send many more worker ants out to tend the caterpillars uh, than uh, you find on many of the other associations. And then there are also a very small number of species within that family, which is the Lysinidae, which have become parasites of the ants. So they no longer give anything in return, and they instead take resources of some sort away from the ants. So for the last 20 years or so, I've been working on a species of butterfly uh, which lives inside ant nests when it's a caterpillar, spends actually most of its life inside ant nests and feeds on the developing ant larvae and is also fed by the worker ants. They bring back food, which instead of giving to their own larvae, they give it to these butterfly larvae. Why why Um, would they do that, though, without killing the caterpillar? uh, Well, that's a very good question, and that's what we've spent a lot of time trying to work out. The short answer is because they probably don't realize that they're raising a caterpillar. They probably they behave as if they're raising an ant larva, and the caterpillars have the same uh, lipids, the same cuticular hydrocarbons on their surface as the ant larvae. So they smell like an ant larva, and so they, to some extent, seem to believe that they're raising a, a very good ant larva that's growing very well, but it's not actually a, an ant at all. It's a butterfly. So at some point, does the caterpillar get big enough to rage through the nest and eat everything and leave, or what happens? Uh, it, it depends on p- which particular species we're talking about. There's there's two different strategies. This uh, genus of butterflies is called Fengaris. It's uh, recently been renamed from Maquilinia, uh, which was known as for, for many decades. And there's two different strategies in this genus. Uh, one does exactly what you say. They, they just eat the, the larvae of the ants, and they go into nests that are relatively small, so a single caterpillar can actually eat all the larvae within the nest, all the ant larvae within the nest. The other strategy has been called a cuckoo strategy because they go into the nest and they eat some larvae, but they also get fed directly by the ants. So like a, a parasitized bird who has a cuckoo in the nest who brings back food, and instead of that food going to its own chicks, it goes to the cuckoo. 
Here, the ants bring back food. Instead of the food going to their own larvae, it goes to the caterpillar or the butterfly. Do ants have multiple relationships like this going on at once, some mutualistic, some parasitic? They can do. So the same ants which are associated with these butterflies up here in Denmark and other places in Europe, they often have also an association with aphids, So and also an association where they get sweet secretions from the aphids. The aphids live on plants, and if you, if you garden at all, you'll know that if you often have aphids on plants, then there'll be ants there as well. And you have the same sort of mutualistic relationship between the aphids and the ants as you have between most of the caterpillars in this family and the ants. So they will provide food for the ants, and in return, the ants will protect the aphids from particularly parasitoid wasps, which may attack them, and other predatory insects that may attack them. Oh, how do the aphids protect the ants, by the way? Uh, so it's the other way around. The, the aphids provide food for the ants. So when they're feeding, they plug themselves into the uh, vessels of the, the plants and draw out the sap of the plants and digest that. But they, still there's a lot of sugar and things left over. So they kick that out the back end as what we call honeydew. And the ants feed on that honeydew. And to protect their source of honeydew, they then protect the aphids against predators and parasites. Are there uh, preferential relationships with ants where, let's say, they'll have you know, relationships ongoing with uh, aphids and caterpillars, etc. And another creature comes along and displaces those relationships because it's preferred to work with them versus the ones they are working with. That's a good question. Something we don't observe. It's not obvious that that happens, but I predict that sometimes that does happen because they, they also get different things from the butterflies, for example, and the aphids. So the aphids... For them, basically, sugar is a byproduct of the way they feed, so it's very cheap for them to produce. So they spit out a lot of sugar in their honeydew, but they take out most of the amino acids uh, that are in the plant sap. So the honeydew is very low in amino acids. On the other hand, the, the secretion of the butterflies is very high in amino acids. It still has a lot of sugar, but it's very high in amino acids. So often you they will use both in the same colony for slightly different needs. And that's something I also examined to a small extent in my PhD 30 years ago. And you, you look at a single ant colony, it will send worker ants to tend both aphids or other hemipterans, uh, which are producing honeydew, and the lysinid butterfly caterpillars but it will send them out to the one that is missing that particular dietary component. So if they're missing um, proteins, they'll send them out preferentially to the butterflies to get more amino acids. If they're missing carbohydrates, they'll send them out preferentially to the aphids to get more carbohydrates. So this is the collective behavior? It's not an individual preference behavior of the ants? That's right. We don't know how it's coordinated within the colony, but ants are remarkably good at making these sort of choices using very simple rules. So it's balancing the diet required by the colony, which depends on the size of the colony and what they're doing at that particular time of year, like whether they're raising a lot of ant larvae and pupae or whether there's none there to be raised. So the ants are remarkably good at self-organizing uh, these work teams to go out and get the nutrients that are required at any one time. Do the ants eat as they go, or do they take things back to the nest and then a whole a cache of stuff is assessed for the colony? It's a mixture of the two. So um, adult worker ants, they can only really feed on liquids. Uh, they have this very strange structure called a proventriculum. It separates the front part of their gut from the back part. 
And they can take in liquids in the front part and liquids can pass through to the back part so they can digest them. But they can also regurgitate those liquids from the front part and any particles that are in there will be regurgitated. And that's how they feed their own larvae and often they feed other workers in the same colony. They can also bring back whole dead insects or parts of insects and feed those to the larvae, but they can't eat them themselves because the larvae have um, fairly ordinary uh, insect gut in the sense you can, uh, they can chew on, on the insect material and it will pass through. But they also do regurgitate some um, digestive products that the adult worker ants feed on as well. So some of them will eat on the run as they go, but a large part of the food collection is to put it into central storage yeah. where it's divvied uh, up? As a first approximation, the, the worker ants, they run on sugars. So they need to get some sugars as they go along. And the larvae, they need proteins to grow. So the worker ants will usually ingest some liquid with sugars as they go along. And they'll also bring back protein for the, uh, for the larvae, for the ant larvae both in their own stomachs and carrying it in their jaws, for example. But is there such a time as like family dinner time for ants, or do they just eat at random schedules, or is there coordinated eating? That, again, is a bit different between different species, but I guess your typical ant will have the larvae eating more or less constantly, but it depends on things like temperature. If there's big differences in temperature during the day, then... Uh, essentially, the more the warmer it is, the hungrier an ant is uh, because they're cold-blooded. The colder it is, the less they'll, they'll need to eat. Uh, so they eat definitely more at some times of day, and they also forage for food outside the nest more at some times of day than other. So the the ants, for example, that are the host for the parasitic caterpillars in here in Denmark, they tend to forage mostly in the morning and the late afternoon, and not so much in the middle of the day where where it's very warm. And that's the butterflies have actually um, adapted to that, and that's when they start uh, emerging from the food plants that they feed on before they're taken back into the, the nest by the ants. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Are ants loners, or are they do they work collectively, or like what's the mix in terms of their daily activities? They're very much collective workers, and there's, there's a, a famous quote that there's no such thing as a solitary ant. So ants are only ever found in colonies, uh, and they very much have a, a fairly efficient division of labor. So some will specialize on collecting food, some will specialize on raising the, the brood within the ant nest. It depends a bit on type of ants. So some of the most primitive ants, are the ones with the smallest colony size, then every worker has to be a, a jack of all trades. And they essentially largely work independently but as you get larger and larger ant colonies there has to be much more coordination and coordinated work and cooperative work amongst the ant workers are there any benefits that ants confer to people or is it indirectly because they help foster you know butterflies to caterpillars i mean caterpillars to butterflies etc like what, what uh, yes there are certainly some direct benefits that humans get from ants most people do not like ants and try and get rid of them if they see them but they are very good pest control agents so that if you want to keep down the number of other insects in an area then encouraging ants is a very good way to do it uh, there are also places on earth where ants are eaten there they 
an amazing number of ants worldwide and amazing abundance of each species. Um, so if it's been reckoned that within tropical forests, for example, the weight of the ants is probably about 10 times the weight of all the vertebrates in those forests. So, of course, if we can exploit that for food, then it's a very good source of food. And, for example, the, the weaver ant, also called the green tree ant, is often used as a food source in, in Southeast Asia. And it's a very productive and very efficient way of uh, harvesting protein. Have you ever eaten ants cooked or raw or otherwise? Uh, yes, yes, I have. Uh, I've eaten the weaver ants, the green tree ants, uh, raw in Australia. Uh, there's also, of course, the honeypot ants. Uh, I've eaten a few of those. And they that's an example where we exploit a particular uh, food storage behavior that they have. Particular ant, particular individuals within the colony, which act as living larders for the colony. So they will be fed particularly uh, honeydew from, from aphids and some nectar from plants, sweet mixture of, of sugars and water, and they'll just take it into their bodies and keep it in this, this crop, this part of the, the um, digestive tract that's before the proventriculus, and they'll just get larger and larger and larger. Uh, and they usually are immobile and hang from the, the roof of the ant nest as living honeypots and when food gets short, then they'll regurgitate some of this for other members of the colony. And if we as humans open one of these colonies and find these very sweet ants, they're a very good source of both sugar and water, uh, in particularly in very arid areas. Yeah, I remember my dad told me in New York they had chocolate-covered ants for a number of years that you could get. Yep. Yes. I, tr I tried those. They were, they were fine. They tasted good. Yes, I mean, the, uh, I think humans like these um, often rather acidic tastes, and a lot of ants produce formic acid or other related acids, uh, so they give a bit of a kick when you, when you eat them. And actually there are several restaurants that uh, serve live or recently killed ants as a sort of garnish um, because of this. They, they taste a little like a balsamic vinegar or something. And they often have interesting smells and tastes. So here in Denmark, we have a, an ant which is known locally as the orange ant, because if you smell it or, or if you eat it, it tastes very much like uh, orange, a uh, very strong orangey flavor. And they even now make spirits flavored with this, so you can get orange ant right. gin or orange ant uh, schnapps. Is it like tequila? They leave like an ant on the bottle of the bottom, just to... So you know. uh, yes, I mean that, that's a bit of a marketing ploy rather than anything else. So you don't you don't need many ants to to flavor it. So I've seen some versions where they leave leave the ants in the bottom of the bottle, and others where they don't. That's funny. Have you have you ever um, been around an anteater, or are there none? In, I mean, I guess they're more tropical. I don't know. Are there any in your area? Or? Uh, there's none in my area. We've um, I've also done a little bit of work in Panama, uh, working on leaf cutting ants there with. That's one of the groups that we work on in Copenhagen. There's been a strong tradition of working on leaf-cutting ants, uh, particularly in Panama. And there, of course, you get uh, several of the anteater species. And I've, I've encountered tamandua and uh, um, pygmy anteaters in the forest there. Uh, but they're fairly rare. They're difficult to see. They're not really symbiotic with ants. They just eat them. No, no. They're, they're simply a, um, yeah, as you say, simply a predator of the ants. Interesting. So what are you trying to figure out with your research right now? You, you know, you're studying these various ants, but what do you hope to learn? 
Uh, well, there are many things I hope to learn from it. So, so one is how we get these transitions from uh, associations which are positive for both sides, which are mutualistic, and uh, negative, on the other hand, so some parasitic associations. What causes that transition between parasitism and mutualism? And there are certainly several species like the one that I was working on for my PhD, which seems to be mutualistic most of the time. But under some circumstances, it seems to be a parasite because the ants could do better by not tending it and tending, for example, the aphids instead. But they still go on tending it. They still seem to be manipulated into doing that by the butterflies. So that's one area of research which I've always been interested in. And there are very few systems we know about on Earth where you have that full range of interactions from parasitic to mutualistic, although it's now being recognized more and more that most systems where there is some symbiotic association have that range of different types of interaction. Well, I was going to ask you, um, are there ants that have relationships with other ant species or are they pretty adversarial oh, to yes. each other? Oh, there are, well, yes, there's, um, there are some that are quite adversarial and actually live as parasites of other nests as well. So um, when I said there was no such thing as a solitary ant, there are actually a few species which have entirely lost the worker caste and only use the worker work done by workers of another species. So they, they somehow get into the nests of that species. There's various different mechanisms they use and exploit the labor of those ants to raise their own offspring. So those are what we call social parasites. And there are also, it's less well documented, and this is something where I hope we can do a lot more research in the future. There are also mutualistic associations between ants, where you get two species of ant nesting together, and they have different roles in that joint nest. It seems often you have one larger species which has protects the colony about against a particular type of predator, and a smaller species which protects the colony against a different type of predator. Are there any relationships that you know you haven't talked about that just like astound you that ants have with other creatures? They range in their relationships so widely, and there's um, if you look at army ants, for example, the probably the best known species of army, army ant called Eston bacellii. It's been recorded as having associations with around 400 other species. And those range from parasitic associations to mutualistic associations. Uh, but some of those associations are rather, well, very, very interesting and rather indirect. For example, there are ant birds are only found around these army ant colonies. And they feed primarily on the insects that the army ants flush out when they're doing their own foraging raids. And then there's a whole group of butterflies and moths that only feed on the, the feces that are produced by these ant birds. So they have a very indirect relationship with the ants, but they still uh, need the ants in order to get the feces from the ant birds. And then there's a whole host of interactions that ants have with different plants. So there's many cases where you have massive changes in the structure of plants uh, so that they can have an association with ants. So probably the most famous one is the bull's horns acacias in Africa, where they, like most acacias, they have thorns on the branches, but they're inflated so and they're hollow 
and they form basically nests for the ants and then the ants will protect the tree from um, many other uh, types of organisms, both annoying herbivores. So if a herbivore tries to browse on one of these trees, they may already be trying to avoid the thorns, but then they have to avoid these very aggressive ants as well. But they also clear areas around the plant of other plants to reduce competition with other plants. Do you think ants have some level of intelligence or do you think it's all instinct that an ant uh, can have associations with hundreds of different species? I think they, well, it's very difficult to know what we mean by intelligence. They, they mostly seem to operate on very simple rules. And the highly adaptive behavior they have emerges from many individuals following those simple rules. So they're amazingly good at changing their behavior, their strategies in response to things they encounter in their environment, such that they optimize their foraging, for example. And there have been some very nice studies on even some of the smallest colonies of ants, ants which are only a millimeter or two long and only have maybe 50 or 100 workers in the colony. And they can do amazing constructions of the colony, for example, changing the, the shape of the, the area they live in by moving stones around using very, very simple rules, uh, which end up looking as if they're very complex and very intelligent, but they're based on a very simple set of rules. So. In any of their constructions, do you see coordinated problem solving? Like, you know, the, the simple rules, do they break down in certain situations and do the ants still succeed? Or if the situation prevents the rules from working, they just can't do what they need to do? I can't think of any cases where the system breaks down completely, but they are, yeah, sometimes they, they do things that are, are not the most optimal strategy that you would recognized from the outside, but it's something that is a, a functional um, response to that problem. Uh, so they can come up with solutions which may not be the simplest, best solution, but they're a solution that works. And, and that's exactly what we see in anything that evolves, really. So they adapt previous behaviors slightly. And if that gives the colony uh, more resources or better fitness, then they retain that particular behavior. So they change their behavior in response to the things around them. Well, can you make ant puzzles, or ant mazes where they have to adapt their behaviors so that they can make something work? Yes, you can certainly do that. Uh, I mean, they're very efficient in one way at solving things like mazes. This is a problem they face essentially every day. So I'm being very general here, but uh, many ant species need to go out and find food, bring it back to the nest and recruit other individuals to come and help them exploit that resource. Because if you're a small ant and you find a large carcass or even a large insect, you won't be able to deal with it on your own. So you need more ants from the same colony in order to be able to take all the food there back to the colony. So they've evolve very simple ways of getting more individuals out to that particular point uh, and then those them taking the resources back to the colony. And this is often using pheromone trails. So if it, they simply have rules such as you forage at random away from the colony, when you find something interesting, you run straight back to the colony and you leave a pheromone trail behind you and then anyone else can just follow that trail and find the piece of prey again. How they know exactly to go straight back to the colony is another problem. They seem to be very good at having some sort of two-dimensional map uh, which they can follow based on 
landmarks based on chemical cues, possibly even based on astrological clues and cues. And for example, it's been shown that many desert ants um, use the position of the sun because there aren't really any other landmarks and the polarized light in, able to, in order to be able to go directly back to their colony from wherever they've ended up foraging. You mean their eyes see light in a polarized way and they can yes. see the direction of the light? That's right, yes. And the uh, the same is true in honeybees. And that's um, so most insects can probably see at least the, the portion of the sky that's polarized in a particular direction. So that can also tell you where the sun is, even if it's overcast, uh, more reliably than just looking at differences in light intensity. Um, and they seem to have built in oh. clocks so they can use that as a compass as well. You mean they know how long they've been away or how far they've gone? Or indeed, what time of day it is. So they, yes, there are, I mean, again, these are probably based on very simple rules, uh, but we still don't fully understand these simple rules even. We know they can respond to polarized light, and we know that even if they've gone away from a a nest on a very zigzag course, if they've been exploring, essentially doing a, a random walk, and then they find food source, they'll usually go directly back to the nest. So there's many potential ways they could do this. They could simply be counting steps as they go along and working out how many times they've turned left and right. Or they may be responding to visual cues on the horizon, or they may be responding to the direction of polarized light. It varies from species to species, and often there seem to be many different cues that are used at the same time. Well, do scientists mess with the ants and you know, if they're going yes. like 100, you know, <laughs> yes, they kind of cross their something... path and, and see if they still follow it. Yes, this hasn't, this isn't something I've worked on, but I, I have colleagues who have uh, done various things, including changing the, the area of the sky that are polarized, rearranging landmarks on the horizon. Um, and you can often displace ants that way so that you can predict where they will go back to if they were using that cue. And this is very much like uh, the, the waggle dance of the bees, which you probably know about, which um, Karl von Frisch described. Um, and there you can very accurately determine where the, the bee has been foraging based on how it dances. But you can also potentially get other bees to go to the wrong place uh, by giving cues that mimic those dances. There's a, a bee robot that was developed in uh, 30 years ago in, in Germany now where... They could actually, using this mechanical device, persuade honeybee workers to go to particular areas outside by mimicking these signals. Have you seen relationships between ants and bees? Do they ever work together? They rarely work together. I can't think of any good example. In, in most of the time, ants would be predators of bees. So if, if an ant colony managed to gain access to a beehive, which is a good source of sugar and and bee larvae, they would probably uh, kill and eat most of the bees. And the bees do spend some time defending against things like ants. So I don't believe I can think of any mutualistic associations between ants and bees. What, uh, well, I mean, what's your dream to figure out in regards to ants? Is there a certain behavior? Is there a certain species that really you're, you're captivated by? Like what's you know, what would be like delightful for you to figure out in your own mind? This is going to be a little complex, but uh, some of these um, socially parasitic ants, they seem to arise uh, through a process of sympatric speciation. So they arise from their host. They evolve from their host species in the same area without any apparent 
barriers to gene flow. So I guess my one of my dreams at the moment, at least, is to follow this up uh, using the genomic tools we have nowadays and to examine this case of how we get speciation happening, how one species arises from another in the same area. And we, we're, we're pretty sure we know how it happens when two species get separated and then come back together. But if they're arising in the same area, then it's a more tricky problem. And this, I think, is one of the best examples we have where we get this strategy of exploiting other colonies arising multiple times in different lineages. A particular species I'm working on at the moment, um, so the the ruby antis, as it's been called, uh, Mermica rubra, which is also an invasive species in, in the US, but it's native in Europe. It has a form of that ant, uh, which has a very small queens, and they seem to be in the process of evolving into a separate species that parasitizes the ruby ant. Uh, but if you look in different parts of the world, they've arisen separately, if you like. So all the um, small microgyne social parasites are not related to each other. They're more related to the host that they're parasitizing. So I think that's a very intriguing example of how evolution, how speciation works, which is actually tractable. We can potentially look at that. No, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, at the complete other end of diversity, if you like, many of these associations mean that the parasites, particularly if they're exploiting the hosts, they can only really do this if they're pretty rare. And there are a lot of conservation issues about these social parasites. So probably the rarest ants worldwide are social parasites because they will only evolve locally and maybe never disperse anywhere. So that has sort of led me into being more interested in insect diversity and conservation and what makes species naturally rare and what makes them naturally common. And that feeds into all the recent discussions about whether we have massive declines in insect in general, and how variations in the type of interactions you get between insects are important for whether insects are rare, common and declining or not. Uh, David, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Uh, they can probably go to the, um, we have a, a website for what's called the Center for Social Evolution uh, at Copenhagen University. It's a, it's a little outdated now, but we're, we're updating the website every now and again. Uh, and that is at the University of Copenhagen. So the website is socialevolution.ku.dk. Or my own web page has a little bit of information. Again, it's rather outdated. I need to update that. Or also, um, actually, today we've just been holding a, uh, a symposium for the uh, local section of the um, what's called the International Union for the Study of Social Insects. Uh, and that is a, a learned society for people working with social insects. So that is also a very good place to go to find out about many of these uh, issues. And uh, last, last item, what's a list of some of the social insects you know? So I guess bees, ants, what else? The ones that show the highest levels of sociality, which where you get large colonies and one or a few queens, that's that's the ants, the bees, and the social wasps. 
And there's many wasps that are not social, but things like the yellow jacket wasps, uh, they also have a structure very much like beehives. And then there's the termites, which are um, a completely different order of insects that have independently evolved a social uh, way of living. So there's, again, single or a couple of uh, queens. And in that case, they also have kings. You don't have kings in ants or bees or wasps. Uh, They're essentially cockroaches that have learned to be social. So they have evolved to have these societies with a big uh, amount of division of labor and specialized individuals that reproduce and work, etc. Um, oh, one last thing you mentioned. You mentioned this right at the beginning that ants have a lot of parallels in human behavior. What are some of those that you've observed that are funny to you or surprise you? Uh, well, there's both cooperation and conflict within ant societies, which we also see in human societies. And there's some very nice parallels with how they handle diseases, for example. Uh, and I have several colleagues who've been working with how it is that we don't see, for example, very many diseases at all amongst termites. We do see pathogens amongst ants, and if they are infected with particular pathogens, then they show behaviors that are now getting very familiar to us, like social distancing and treating with um, antibiotics. And these are all things that have evolved. So they actually produce antibiotics from their own glands um, and apply them to each other. Um, So they effectively can become vaccinated against uh, some pathogens, for example. So they're remarkably good at managing diseases, for example, even though if you think about an ant colony, it's full of many individuals who are very close together. So transmission of diseases is something that should be very easy. But we actually see it doesn't happen very much because they've evolved very efficient ways of dealing with that. And I think there's many cases where we could actually learn a lot from how we can prevent transmission of pathogens from how social insects manage this. Well, Dave, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of different subjects, but it's been really interesting. Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure. I can see that I work in a rather different area than most of your interviewees, but I hope it's still still rather, I hope it's still interesting and inspiring. Uh, Definitely. I always think the best uh, science actually comes out of people trying to think in new ways based on a different background. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.